What's going on, guys? This is Jesse Barnett from Stick to Your Guns, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with a brand new episode. And today on the show, we've got Dave Gorman of Orange Island. Orange Island is back. They've got One Night Stay coming out on Iodine Recordings. This collection of tracks has been out of print for 15 years, and it's back. It's out now, and we cover it all. We cover the history of Orange Island. Dave talks about the Boston scene, the bands of the time that influenced them, addiction, regrets, the excitement of the re-release, we cover it all. It's a really great conversation. That's coming up in a minute. So before we get into that, support us, The New Scene. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I've got a couple new reviews here I'm going to read now. The first one is from Tanita. Five stars, unexpected greatness. I can't believe this podcast didn't show up in my recommended. Came for Tobias from Softkill stayed for amazing content. Thank you, Tanita. A lot of people have really been digging the Tobias Grave episode, Tobias from Soft Kill, and they've been digging the Michael Berdan episode from Uniform. I heard from a couple people online saying that the discussions about sobriety have really helped them, and that makes me really happy, so thank you. Next review, M Crypto. Five stars, great show. Didn't know what to expect at first, but it's great content, and it just gets better and better after every episode. Thanks to Tobias Grave, Soft Kill, for leading me here. Rock on. See that? Another high review of the Tobias Grave episode. Uh, thank you both for the reviews. That was awesome. Other ways to support us, pick up a shirt. We've got shirts for sale. Head on over to Deathwish Inc. Search the new scene. The shirts pop up. We've got a long sleeve option. It's getting colder out right? You're going to need that long sleeve. We've got t-shirts. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Thank you for your support. Also support Iodine Recordings. There's a lot going on right now over at Iodine. Orange Island, One Night Stay is out. Stretch Armstrong, Rituals of Life Reissue is out. The Darling Fire, Distortions is out. Three awesome records from three awesome bands. Make sure you check them out, honestly. And check out Iodine over on Instagram at Iodine Recordings or at their website at iodinerecords.com. Okay, let's talk music recommendations. Now, I'm going to start off by again recommending Orange Island, One Night Stay, of course. It's a great record. But another song I want to recommend from Orange Island is Pyretic Eyes, the same soap opera. It's the first song from their rise records ep and you'll hear dave talk about this ep and the conversation that i have with him coming up what a song great song you know he said that these were the best songs they've ever written and i'm inclined to agree with him check it out and i'm digging into some post furnace fest discoveries i have gone to furnace fest i have returned from furnace fest and i saw a lot of awesome bands older bands Newer bands, stuff I've kind of heard before but haven't really dug into yet. Comeback Kid, Spirit Box, The Appleseed Cast, 
Pedro the Lion. I mean, I've got a lot of homework to do. And uh, listen, I'm not going to go too far into detail on Furnace Fest yet because this Thursday, I've got a full Furnace Fest recap episode coming out, a bonus episode with some special guests. Make sure you tune in for that. We're going to go through the whole thing. It was a lot of fun. It was awesome. You'll hear all about it. All right. So check back in with me in segment three. I'll talk a little bit about Furnace Fest and some things that went on. I'll tell you what's going on otherwise. But right now, we are going to speak to Dave Gorman of Orange Island. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here now with Dave Gorman. Dave, welcome to the show. Keith, thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to have you here, Dave. There's exciting things happening in your world. Orange Island has a collection of tracks coming out, a new LP on Iodine Recordings, and there's other stuff going on, and we're going to dig into that. But I've got to ask you first, Dave, how are you doing today? Um, I am doing good, honestly, Keith. Uh, so today, my day job, I work on a farm. And unlike many, many other farms where you're, you're harvesting vegetables and fruits and so on and so forth, I actually work on a flower farm. And um, I found my way to this job at the very beginning of the pandemic. And it's one of the luckiest things that's happened to me in quite a long time. But so we we, we farm flowers and uh, dahlias are probably our biggest crop of the year. And we're just about at the precipice of the beginning of dahlia season. And today was actually our first um, real big, like full day harvest of dahlias. So it was a great start to the week. It was a beautiful day here in New England. And it's just a special time of year to be on the farm and to be surrounded by so much beauty uh, but at the same time, it's also a hustle. Um, but it's kind of like the mix of the two is is a really special thing. So you caught me on a really, really great Monday. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. A flower farm. That sounds like a really peaceful, serene job. I mean, I'm sure there's uh, some farming involved, which is tough, but it it just sounds very nice in my mind. Yes, for sure. Um, it is farming, for sure. So it is definitely still, you know, hard work, long days, early mornings, all, all that good stuff. But um, having farmed on a vegetable uh, farm and um, apple and uh, peach orchard previously to working on this farm, 
I know that side of farming and it is a little more intense, I will say for sure. So um, flower farming is a little more serene. There's a little more peace. There's a little more, I don't know, we have a little more control, I guess, over the environment. Although these days with the way um, climate change is affecting all of us uh, here in New England, we're in a severe drought. Um, We were in a severe drought pretty much all summer. And then on Friday afternoon at about 3 p.m., the skies opened up. And then within 25, 30 minutes, we had two inches of rain which is more rain than we have had at the farm in the last two and a half months. Um, so it is wild in that sense too. You know, there's, there's the managing of, of just the conditions all the time, which is really becoming the harder and harder thing for all farmers these days. But, um, but yeah, it, it, to, to, to your point, the serenity of just the land that I get to go to work on every day, I hesitate to call it work. I mean, it, it's a hard, it's, it's, it's a, it's hard work. It's, it's physical. It's, it's all those things. It's taxing on your body, but I am driving into work with a smile on my face. Most days I don't want to leave work when I'm supposed to. <laughs> um, and, and that's a rarity in the world today. And I know that having worn a lot of hats in a lot of different professions in my life since uh, Orange Island ended as a full-time band, as a full-time touring, you know, recording band. So um, I've tried on a lot of different hats and I'm, I am so extraordinarily lucky to have found my way to this, this flower farm. How did you get into farming? I've only spoken to one other musician on this show who got into farming and that was Matt Pryor from the Get Up Kids. Well, that is really, really good company for me then. Um, uh, so I got into farming, um, it, it, well, it's twofold. Um, I... Going back to my childhood, my uh, my parents both worked, which was you know very common growing up in the eighties and nineties. And so my grandparents, my mom's parents, um, helped raise my brother and I quite a bit. You know, while my parents were still at work, we'd get out of school or even before you know full full school and all that stuff. Uh, my grandfather used to take my brother and I foraging uh, in the woods constantly uh for everything depending on the the time of year and the season we were in um i actually have a um a tattoo on the inside of my left forearm which is a blue which is blueberries and it's a memorial tattoo for my grandfather because he used to take my brother and i foraging for blueberries all over massachusetts he had all of his secret spots um many of them now sadly have been um, steamrolled for re- residential development and all of that good stuff. Um, but point being is, uh, I developed that initial love of foraging for your own food and farming your own food, uh, really, really young. And a lot of that came from, from my grand, my grandfather and my grandmother too, as well. They always had a huge garden. So as often as they possibly could, they were making, you know, their meals from what fish my grandfather was catching. He'd bring them home. He'd throw them down on the table. My grandmother would clean them up and fry them up and cook them up. And next thing you know, they were eating dinner, you know, an hour after it had been caught out of the, you know, out of the reservoir or out of the lake or wherever it was. So a lot of that was, was really, um, sort of that foundation was, was laid for me very, very early. And it was always, always a, piece of who I was growing up. And then really uh, after Orange Island first, um, well, I guess the only time that we we sort of put the band to rest um, for many, many years now, I have worked in the financial industry. 
I've, I've farmed, I've uh, worked in the cannabis industry in Massachusetts. I've, I've done a bunch of different things. What led me to farming at this point in my life is um, I, I realized one day sitting in an office, a nice office, I'm not going to lie. It was a nice office, has a window, all that good stuff. But I realized one day sitting in that office that I didn't want to be sitting in an office for the rest of my life, uh, yeah. or the rest of my professional life. It didn't matter how much money I could make or, or how soon I could retire or those types of things. And I'm not saying that those aren't important things because they are to a lot of people and they are to me as well. But priorities in life for me are day-to-day happiness, um, making sure that I am part of something you know, there's a there's a line in a, a Fleet Foxes song, and I'm probably I'm, I'm not going to quote it well, but basically the point is is um, the beauty of being a co- a cog in in the in the greater you know in the the greater machine, being one piece. There's nothing. There's no shame in that, right? There's you don't have to be the big monster machine. You can just be one small piece in in, in working together in unison to make, you know, a greater good for the world. And that's genuinely how I feel farming. The people that I work with, that my teammates, my crew on the farm are, we're all from very different walks of life and perspectives and these things, but we all have a a love and a passion, not just for farming, but for, for doing something good in the world and leaving a mark and, and interacting with other uh, people that, are passionate about these types of things and care so much about these types of things. Um, That is just, that is where I want to live really for the rest of my, my days, Um, whether it's work or outside of work. I I just want to, um, I want to do good in the world. I want to, I want to share ideas with other people. I want to work hard for a common, you know, beautiful goal. And farming has really given all of that to me and then some. So, yeah, just I don't know. I I I guess there was always a piece of me deep down that would that would not have been surprised to have ended up, you know, uh, it, like if you had asked me 25 years ago when Orange Island was really kind of just getting going, we were just getting ready to record our first record for Casey and just you know getting our feet wet with touring and playing shows and really being a band. If you had asked me then, hey, you know, 25 years from now you'll, you'll be a farmer and you will be farming flowers, uh, for this wonderful family in Upton, Massachusetts. Do you believe that? I probably would have said yes. Um, cause I always just had that again, that, that, uh, just initial, uh, love instilled of nature and my, in the surroundings, um, for my grandparents, you know, from such a young age. So I love that. Yeah. I feel a lot of parallels with what you're saying, Dave, in terms of connecting with the past and just day-to-day happiness. That's my goal too. I don't try to get too fixated on the future because there's just so many unknowns. And yeah, yeah, you know, back in the day, 18 years old, I'm out on the road with bands. I'm trying to get into my own band. That's my world. That's everything. And if someone would have told me, hey, uh, 20 years from now, you're going to be doing a podcast and talking to all these bands you're looking up to. And I would have said, what's a podcast and <laughs> probably not because but i think as we get older we circle back maybe a little bit to what we were doing when we were younger you know as i started doing this thing i remembered being 8 9 years old 
and I would just sit there with a tape recorder and I had like four different talk shows that I would do and different voices and guests and everything. So I guess I just circled back to that. That's, I love that Keith, honestly. Um, no, it, it's, it really is. It's, it's, um, I think the, the older we get in life, especially if you really are in tune with your passion and, and the things that really, um, I don't know, really excite you, like really light that fire deep within you. Um, because obviously as we get older, it's easy to, you know, let that fire die out. It's easy to let the world around us, um, you know, um, pour water all over the fire because it's so easy to get caught up in the insanity that's being thrown at us all, you know, all day, all the time through social media, through whatever it is. But I think, you know, for me, um, not to get too, too, too far off topic, but, um, I'm someone who has struggled at times in my life, um, you know, with substance abuse. And as I've gotten older, it's so easy to fall into the trap of, you know, Oh, I'll just have, I'll just have a drink or I'll just do this or I'll just do that. And the reality for me is, is I've learned as I've gotten older, in order for me to be the best version of myself, the healthiest and happiest version of myself is to not sort of um, numb myself down or, or, you know, or kind of like just, just slink away and, and hide from the world. It's really for me to, to listen to my heart and listen to my, what's driving me to just live my life on a daily basis and take that passion and that love. And again, whether it's music, farming, um, friendship, family, the things that motivate me every day to get out of bed and want to live the best life I can live. Those are, those are the reasons why I find myself to be probably in one of the best places I've been in my life in a long time, because I continue to listen to myself, right? I listen to that little voice that's like, Hey man, this may not be the most um, extravagant living. This may not be, um, you may have to struggle for a while, but you know what? You're going to wake up every day, happy to do what you're doing. You're going to wake up every day, excited to go and work with your crew, you know, towards this, this beautiful goal that you're all striving for every year. It's yeah, there's just, there's magic in that for me. And I would take that you know, a million times out of a million versus, you know, a big payday to do a job that I despised or to do a job where I knew I wasn't really doing any good for the world. Maybe I was potentially doing, you know, bad for the world, at least in my eyes. So those sort of core values and and some of this to sort of bring it back to the music scene and, and, you know, the world that you and I kind of grew up in uh, from a music standpoint is, you know, the, the sort of DIY ethos and, you know, not just doing it yourself, but passing, you know, passing that forward or um, helping out the next band that's coming up in your scene that that is green, right? And doesn't know what they're doing yet. You know, passing on some information to them, passing on some contacts to them, you know, putting them on your show as an opening band. These are such small things at the end of the day, but man, do they mean so much to that small up and coming band. And I for so long was a member of one of those small up and coming bands and Orange Island, probably more so than many bands in that time frame in the late nineties, early two thousands, we got 
I, I guess maybe I don't want to always make it about luck because that's probably not fair either, but we were very lucky in the sense that we, we, we were friendly with bands that were doing a little bit better than us, maybe had come out a little bit sooner than we did. And they, helped us, whether that was just, again, putting us on a show, um, telling a booking agent about us, telling a record label about us, tell, wearing our t-shirt on stage in front of a couple hundred people when we were lucky to play in front of, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 people at that point. So to me, a, a lot of this sort of bleeds into each other. Um, the, the farming world that I live in and that sort of creative, um, caring aspect of the work that I do today on a daily basis. There's, there's a lot of similarities in, in the farming world to me that there was in the music scene back then as well. People supporting each other, lifting each other up, helping each other, caring, sharing ideas. Um, and, and, and again, in a world where that is so much more, you know, the exception and not the rule, people are less willing to give and less willing to share Um, and I find that in the circles I put myself in and actively continue to do that, um, and, and seek that out that I continue to have these experiences 20, 25 years later. And and again, I, I feel extraordinarily lucky for it, but I also know that I'm seeking it out on purpose. Yeah. There's a lot of core values that carry over from the old days and going to shows and helping each other out and all of that to now and things we're doing. And I mean, all of my best qualities I learned from the scene and going to shows and being with other people and a lot of the ideals that are associated with those bands and that time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's around even now, still. It's still around. But Dave, take us back a little bit. Let's talk about the beginning of Orange Island. Where were you? What was the scene like? Who were your influences? What did you want to accomplish? Set the stage for us. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I would say that um, we were, we Orange Island, but also we the collective um, music fan that was seeking out something a little different, something a little underground, indie, hardcore punk, whatever you want to call it. Um, we were extraordinarily lucky growing up in, whether it was Boston or even out closer to Worcester, uh, in the nineties and early two thousands. Um, not only did we have a very diverse music scene, we also were blessed with amazing venues. Um, you had your, your, your prototypical club venues that were, were so open and, and welcoming to smaller band shows, to punk shows, to hardcore shows, all ages shows, stuff like that, um, throughout the city of Boston. But then you had so many, you know, VFW halls and places that you could rent out. And man, they they were not, you know, a lot of the people running these places were not, they didn't say no. They pretty much said, yes, you'd show up and say, Hey, you know, we're going to have some bands come in and play here. We're probably going to have a couple hundred kids. Uh, We'll rent the PA. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll be in, we'll be out. We'll take care of it. And the truth is, is that most bands and, or, you know, the, the, um, the better promoters back then, they were true to their word. They showed up, they showed up on time. The amount of kids ish they thought were going to be there were the amount of kids that showed up. They, you know, set it up, they broke it down. And and this went on all the time. And it was such a beautiful thing to discover when, you know, I'm, I'm a kid who was, um, I've had a job 
pretty much as long as I can remember being alive. But I had a paper route starting when I was seven or eight years old. And um, I would take whatever proceeds I had. And every uh, Friday afternoon or Saturday morning, I'd get to go and buy either a cassette tape or a CD, depending on the time of my life. And that would be my sort of gift to myself for that week. And I would bring that home and I would have this physical release in my hands and I would, you know, I would unwrap it and I would take the tape out or take the CD out and put it in the boom box and start listening and read along with the lyrics and read through the liner notes and having these experiences, you know, of tangible music in my hands, in my bedroom, in my childhood bedroom growing up. But to then fast forward five, six years, and I'm just a really, you know, 14, 15 years old, and I start getting invited to, you know, a random show at a VFW hall. I saw the, the Flaming Lips. I saw the Stone Temple Pilots before these bands were ever um, any kind of household name. I saw them at literal VFW halls in Massachusetts. I saw, you know, and then two weeks later, I'm seeing, you know, Overcast and Split Lip and Bane at this incredible, incredible, totally DIY artist-driven venue in Worcester called The Space. And I don't know, Keith, if you've ever heard about the space, if anybody on the podcast has ever talked about it, but the artist space in Worcester, Massachusetts, there were three different incarnations over the span of maybe, I want to say seven or eight years. It was, I can't even begin, like if I just were to run off the the uh, list of bands that I saw playing the space, now you have to realize this is a, this is a, a warehouse and it probably is, it's a room, it's just one long room that maybe could legally hold 250, 230 people in it. And, but you would also have shows all the time where there was only 40, 50 people attending because it was just a small local show. And the space was just willing to literally give their stage to whoever wanted to book it. If you wanted to book a show and there wasn't a show on that day, the space was yours. And that was, also such a beautiful thing about that place is you didn't have to know the right people. You didn't have to have clout or cachet or money or anything that you just needed. You just wanted to, if you wanted to create art, they wanted to give you a, a, a place for you to create your art or to show off, you know, what it is that, that you do. I saw Jimmy world playing there. I saw hot water music playing there. I saw the get up kids playing there. I mean, the amount of bands, that came through this tiny little venue and really it lit a, I don't want to say it lit a fire because the fire in me was already lit for sure in all aspects of music, but seeing bands 15, 20 minutes from my house in this small collective art space made it feel attainable, I guess is what I'm driving at. It made it feel tangible and real for me. It made it feel like, I could get together with some of my best friends and we could make music and make art and make noise and maybe get on that stage sometime soon. That's what happened to me too. Just seeing my friends play in good bands, I was like, they're doing it. I can do it. This is possible. Oh my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was that a lot of, a lot of that seeing shows in those smaller spaces was a lot of what for me initially gave me that I guess it really just fanned the flames of the fire that I already had burning within me that said, Hey, this can, you can do this. Right. And that was sort of the first piece of it. The second piece of it, without a doubt, 
being a band that grew up in the town of Clinton, Massachusetts, was very small mill town. When I say small, I mean small. You could you could ride your your BMX bike from one side of town to the other as a ten year old kid in probably fifteen minutes. It, it, you know, it was it's it's you could drive by Clinton in in a in a, the blink of an eye. But at the same time, we were this town or the town that that we all kind of grew up in and came from and we all meaning orange island we were so so lucky to have a band that really laid the foundation for just being in a band but also again realizing that it's attainable we have this band cast iron hike who was just this amazing mix of there was hardcore in there but it was really like heavy groove oriented rock riffs and they were they were existing in a time where so many singers were screaming or you know or or just you know uh, whatever was coming out vocally was coming from this guttural place and Jake uh, Brennan the singer for Cast Iron Hike I mean it's not like he was you know singing opera but I mean he 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 sang and so that was different from a lot of the bands that I was hearing kind of in the underground scene at the time, there was a lot of punk, there was a lot of hardcore Um, emo was, was just about to start happening. I think actually uh, Chris Papecki, the lead guitar player in Castor and Hike was the person who turned me onto sunny day real estate diary. And that was at the time when Castor and Hike was pretty much reaching their pinnacle of like this amazing, amazing local band that was starting to, get some like national acclaim and they were in the midst of signing to victory and they were about to make a record, um, you know, about to make their full length, full length for victory um, recording with Brian McTurnan, who I know, you know, and have had on the show. And that, that was just a massive, massive piece of, of the building block for orange Island. And what made it again, seem so much more attainable for us was we were, you know, at this point, we, Orange Island, we were, uh, I'm the oldest member in the band. At that time, I was probably, let's say, uh, 16 or 17. And that would have made like Chuck 13 or 14, Brendan 12, 13 at the time. So we were kids, you know, we were in junior high and early high school at this time. But we could show up at the space that Cast Iron Hike jammed in. And we could just go and hang out and just listen to these guys play and watch and learn. And there's so much that we were watching and learning at that point that we never realized until we strapped instruments on ourselves and got into, you know, uh, initially Chuck's parents' basement and started trying to make music on our own. A lot of it came from just really watching what they did and then trying to kind of mimic it in a lot of ways. And that's not to say mimicking the sound or exactly the style, but just, wow, these guys can do it and do it so well and make such incredible music. Why can't we do it? Right. So, I mean, that was a huge, 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 um, you know, motivator for all of us uh, early on for sure. Yeah. There, it was a great time for music. There was a lot of interesting stuff going on, a lot of growth, a lot of crossover, different genres exploding. You had a melodic metalcore thing happening. You had the emo thing happening. And it sounds like the perfect melting pot for 
what became Orange Island and what you guys did. Well, and what's crazy, Keith, too, is, and I know all of us that existed in this scene probably have some version of this, but I could go see a cast iron hike show. And on that bill, I could see Texas is the reason. I could see Still Suit. I could see, um, oh God, I'm trying to think of someone else totally off, uh, like Error Type 11, um, Six Going on Seven. Um, it just the, the shows back then, in the coolest of ways, it was so there was nothing there there was nothing about like oh you you sound like this then you can't be on that bill oh you don't sound like that then you can't be on this bill it was hey you're a band you're doing your thing you're making your art you're part of this scene we have this you know we have a show we're booking a show are you around can you get up for it can you drive up from new york can you drive down from new hampshire whatever it was right so the the beauty of of going to see the band that you know you want to see and then you're exposed to all this amazing music but it's all these different styles whereas i feel like today so and I, I, you know in in certain aspects this isn't happening but i think in the the greater um overall sort of touring packaged world it's like oh all the pop punk bands go on a tour together. All the hardcore bands go on a tour together. All the these bands go on a tour together. And the, the kids going to see a specific band on that tour, on that package, could be could have their minds blown by something they never thought they would be into. But I, my fear is is that these days they're not getting exposed to it as much as as we were when you know when we were doing it. So I feel really lucky in that sense that. As someone myself personally, who I like, there's definitely some hardcore music that I I love very deeply. But I would say overall, I lean more towards melody. Um, you know, if you want to go to that to that genre specifically, is certainly more on the emo side of things, the post hardcore, the indie rock, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, melody for me, and and that that sort of aspect of of music and songwriting is really probably one of the biggest um, draws for me in music. Um, I, I I will always I will always lean towards a beautiful melody over like a you know a chord that doesn't fit um, in the right place. And and I get and I get that it's it's like different strokes for different folks, and that's sort of the beauty of music and art. But so I would ha- you know was lucky to go to these shows early on in Massachusetts at these at, at just a host of different venues between Boston and Worcester have you know the experience of seeing hardcore bands with punk bands with this bands with that bands so my horizons were just being broadened constantly 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 and then for me personally the sort of next step in the evolution and right before Orange Island started was I got a job working at Newbury Comics which anybody living anywhere near New England will, of course, listening to this will know, but even I'm sure a lot of people living outside of the area know of Newbury Comics, but just a, a just an amazing uh, record store, um, art store, merch store, comic book store, just really brought a lot of what was going on in those shows and those venues to a place where you could then bring that physical release home, but also a place where you could just go and talk to people about music for hours on end. Um, so I started going into Newbury Comics as a customer and then very quickly became an employee. But 
the first recommendation that was given to me, actually, of all people, um, Aaron Dahlbeck from Bain and now in Be Well, he was like, you need this record. And he handed me Jimmy Eat World Static Prevails. And I put that CD in my car. I was 17, I think at the time. I put that CD in my car and I, I don't think it ever left my CD changer. I was just, that was it. That was really, that record really, really unlocked something for me. And I remember driving back to town and picking up Chuck, our drummer, Orange Island's drummer and lyricist. And I said, you have to get in my car and we have to drive around for an hour right now. And we can't talk to each other, which was also really hard for us then because we were both very chatty and still are. Um, I was like this, we just have to sit and drive. I will drive us around and you just, you just have to listen. You just have to listen to this magic. And we listened to the entire record, got all the way through it. And I still, Chuck and I have never talked about this, but I still in some weird way feel like, if that moment never happened, I don't know if our band would have ever happened. It probably would have, but there was something about that moment in that day and that time that it, to me, I draw a, a very direct line to that, to that moment. And then it wasn't long after that, that Chuck and his cousin, Brendan got together in Chuck's parents' basement and started messing around. Chuck was a drummer. His dad was a drummer. Um, so there was always a drum set in the basement and Brendan, um, Chuck's cousin had been, you know, had been learning the guitar and getting more proficient at the guitar over the years. And they got together and just started messing around with some covers. And then all of a sudden it started to happen and, and they were starting to write some of the very beginnings of Orange Island stuff. And I remember very vividly Chuck reaching out to me and being like, Hey, come by my house this weekend. I have something I want to play for you. I think Bren and I might be good enough to start a band and there's nobody else that I would want to be in the band than you. And he's like, I feel like you should be the singer, but just come and listen to these silly little demos we made and let's just have some fun. And I showed up and oddly enough, I may have cut the easiest most seamless, most simple, most not uh, overwrought thought about vocal in my entire life of being a singer. I, I listened to this one demo that they had put together and all of a sudden it was like the melody just kind of poured through me and some words came out and um, Chuck had gotten a four track that year for Christmas and I sat in a corner and I recorded some vocals and that was literally the first thing Orange Island ever did. It was like fate almost. I, I mean, in some ways I kind of feel like it was, but you know, I mean, that's, uh, uh, you know, it, it, I don't know. Yes and no. <laughs> um, but I do, I do feel like so much of that music scene really bubbling up in that moment for all of us is really what pushed us very, um, I don't know, pushed us hard in the direction of, well, why wouldn't we, do this or why wouldn't we try and create art just like everyone around us is and if they can do it why can't we do it right so it felt very attainable i think and again a lot of that to me and i think the rest of the guys would agree goes back to the cast iron hike thing like having 
those, I don't even want to say big brothers. I mean, in some ways they were probably to the younger, uh, the, <laughs> probably to Brendan because he was the youngest member of Orange Island. They were the bigger brothers to me. They were like, you know, just, just friends that were a couple a few years older than me, but they, I think helped us really genuinely feel like, well, we, we're probably never going to be as good as them, but if they can start a band and play shows and create this art and have this fun with each other and meet other bands and maybe get to just go out and see a little of this, you know, of the country just to play music, then why would we not want to do that? Cause that seems like the greatest idea literally on the planet. Absolutely. And talk about Orange Island's place in the scene and how things were going as you were getting started. I mean, you were the first band that Iodine initially signed, correct? Yes, we were. Um, well, yes, we were the first band that Casey signed for sure. Orange Island was not the first release. He did a couple of other things before um, our first EP. There was the compilation. Yeah, that- the Ghost in the Gears. And that, and that was huge for Casey too, because he... You know, Casey is such a hustler. Not that I need to tell you that, but I'm telling, I guess, the world that's listening on the podcast. Um, yeah, tell the world because I already know. Yeah. <laughs> Casey is such a hustler, such a hard worker, such a just a genuinely good human being. You know, you you just you want to help him. You want to be a part of working with him and doing things that he's excited about doing. I'll never forget the first time I like. I, I'm sure. Casey and I had probably ran in the same circle at some point or been at the same show and maybe even possibly been introduced to each other. But I'll never forget the first time I actually like met him, met him. And, and this was Chuck had just had the first kind of conversation with him about, you know, about Orange Island, about the possibility of him releasing music for us. And I just, (laughs) I met, I met Casey and it was at some, it was kind of like a house party situation in Alston in Boston. And the next thing I knew I was having this, like, well, I was one minute, I was having this like really just deep, meaningful, thoughtful, lovely conversation with this dude who I was just meeting about music, about, you know, the world around us. And at that point, Casey is someone who I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, Keith, but he hiked and actually completed the entire Appalachian trail. Um, so he's, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So he's very much like an outdoors person and, and is very much in tune with nature as well. So we were talking about all this different stuff and I'm totally like vibing with him. And I'm like, Oh man, what a great dude. I would love for him to put out music for us. And, and then I kid you not 30 minutes later. And and this was, you know, back in, in the day and things got a little crazy. He, um, I don't know what happened in those 30 minutes, but I'm sure there was a, a massive amount of intoxication, uh, but the next thing I knew, he was sliding down the stairs of his apartment without his shirt on, and he landed headfirst at my feet, looked up at me and said, so can I put your record out now? And I looked down at him and said, yes, absolutely you can. <laughs> that's a great... And that's sort of the beauty of Casey to me is is hard, hard worker will support you through everything and anything. And then, you know, every once in a while, he just needs a moment to to enjoy himself and he enjoys himself fully. And I don't know that he does anymore because he's, you know, a record label owner and he wears a lot of hats. But um, back in our early 20s, when we had a lot less cares in the world, um, I'll never forget that moment. He just had this 
this beautiful grin on his face and said, can I, now can I put your record out? I said, yes, I would love for you to borrow records out, please. Sold. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And then honestly, Keith, I, I can, I started to show up at his apartment two, three days a week for weeks and weeks and months after that, just, just to help. I wanted to help him do what he was doing, not just specifically for Orange Island, anything that he was working on for iodine, I wanted to be a part of and I wanted to help with. And, you know, ultimately, I guess I assumed or knew that pushing the label forward would obviously help us in the end too. But I was doing it just because I was excited to be a part of what he was doing and a part of the scene in whatever this, you know, small way I could be. And, and I just really wanted to be along for the ride in any way that I could, if that was, you know, every once in a while, like roadieing or helping out the guys in Cast Iron Hike when they had a bigger show or something or other smaller bands that I was friends with helping them out and then starting to help Casey out with label stuff. It was just, I just wanted to be a part of the scene and the music world that I was becoming a part of. And I wanted, I just wanted to be engrossed in it all every day, all the time. And I felt uh, extraordinarily lucky that, that um, Casey not only wanted to put our band's music out, but that he was, you know, open to uh, receiving that help and, and, you know, teaching me um, aspects of the business that I, you know, wasn't aware of. And a lot of that for me personally, as Orange Island started to ramp up and release music and, you know, we were booking tours ourselves, very DIY style. Um, Casey was doing a lot of it for us because he had a lot more contacts than we had. But I was there on the day to day with him, literally in his bedroom in his apartment in Boston. And so I was learning a lot from what he had already learned himself um, through trial and error or through other people who had done it before him who had, you know, sort of paid it forward to him. So I learned a lot about sort of the management side of of being in a band um, in those early days just through helping Casey, um, you know, do iodine stuff. So that ultimately down the road, I feel like helped Orange Island quite a bit because I had all of that, um, all those resources to draw from, you know, when we were on the road and something kind of random came up, it's probably a situation Casey had already dealt with, with another band or, you know, or had a story for me about someone else who had dealt with it. So, um, that was, um, I don't know, that was priceless, uh, information and experience for me to, to also, you know, do that stuff early on and, and kind of help him out with, with, with iodine. Talk about Orange Island and your place in the scene. How would how did the shows go? How did you guys go over? I feel like it was tough for a lot of post hardcore bands because sometimes you're not heavy enough for the hardcore kids, and sometimes you're not emo enough for the emo kids. And I've talked to a lot of post hardcore type bands that just never really found their place. And you know, at the time, it was a lot of melodic metalcore and pop punk and emo stuff. So if you're if you're in one of those worlds, you can kind of do okay and take off and be all right. And if you're on a show with similar bands, you'll do okay. But tell me about your experience. Yeah, um, I would say without a doubt, that was the hardest part of being in Orange Island was we never felt like we fit anywhere. Even even today with with, you know, years and years and years of perspective, I guess I could see a little bit of where we could have fit in, in different, um, I don't know, in different um, years of Orange Island existing as a band. But the issue for us was, was exactly what you just said was we were drawing from 
Oh my God. We, I mean, we were drawing from so many different, um, you know, bands and, and how that came through in our sound is just how it came through. But I mean, collectively as a band, you know, uh, quicksand, hot water music at the drive-in, um, the get up kids, hot rod circuit, you know, just, there were so many bands that we all collectively loved to listen to and would draw inspiration from. But, you know, I think any band learns very quickly, especially if you're in, in your, in a band for any real you know amount of time is your inspiration comes from a place, but usually that is not what your band sounds like, or maybe very early on because you don't really know what your sound is yet. So you're just, kind of mimicking what you know and what you love anyways. But once you really develop what your sound is as a band, I don't know. I'm sure there's probably bands and and artists and songwriters out there that are very clear about their vision before they ever even write a song or write a part to a song. But Orange Island was very much the exact opposite. We just wanted to be a band and we wanted to be part of a scene and we wanted to create art together. And we felt like we were the right group of people that could do it. And so we just tried it and we kept trying and trying and trying until things started to make some sense until, you know, um, what Brendan was playing and what I was playing on the guitar matched up. Um, it was, we were all self-taught. None of us has any, you know, music theory. None of us has any like formal music training. It was really truly about finding what works and what we like and when, once we get there, we'll know and we'll just keep heading in that direction. So that that was what we did as a band. And at that point, when you're starting to write your first songs and you're just jamming in a random jam space or someone's basement, you're not really thinking about who's going to hear this. It, does it fit into a box, you know, or into a, you know, a bucket, a category and nice and neat, or is it in between this and in between that and in between this and in between that? And what we found as we started to take our music out to the world and start to record it and start to play for people is, you know, the early incarnation of Orange Island, which I'm sure it's this way for a lot of bands when you're younger and you're self-taught, you're playing fast because it's easier to play fast. Um, you're not worrying about, you know, timing as much. You're just, you're just excited to play music and you're just trying to get through the song and wait and get to that moment in the song that you love so much so you can freak out on stage. Um, or at least that's sort of the way I saw it. As we started to develop as actual songwriters and a lot of this for Orange Island certainly came, certainly like started with, we initially started working with uh, Mike Porman, who, um, who is, played in a bunch of great bands who has um, engineered and, and produced a bunch of amazing bands in his studios throughout the years and has worked with other amazing people. Probably most famously was the drummer in hot rod circuit for, for um, if it's cool. And um, um, sorry about tomorrow. Anyways. Um, so Mike was sort of our first, I don't know, engineer producer. Mike was working at, uh, Emerson College in Boston, and Mike was like, "Hey, I get X. I bank X amount of studio time every weekend, and come in. Let's work on your music. Let's work on your stuff. Let me try to help you. Let me. Let's just get stuff recorded so that we can start to kind of work through it. And and you know, I, I'll help you guys in any way that I can. Um, so those were like sort of the initial building blocks 
for, you know, for the band. And then when we were getting ready to go in and record our um, full length for Casey, uh, everything you thought you knew, we had, uh, we meaning Orange Island had been massive collective fans of a very, a very, a band who burned up very quickly um, called Milltown, which Brian McTurnan was one of the guitar players in um, this amazing singer from the Boston scene, Jonah Jenkins, who sang for this band, Only Living Witness. And then um, uh, Rob and Jay were the rhythm section, these two amazing players from Boston. And then this dude, Matt Squire. And so Matt Squire at the time, um, we didn't really know who he was or how he sort of fit into things, but Matt, as we found out over time, grew up in DC with Brian and Matt and Brian had been in a band when they were, they may have even been preteens at that point when they started it, they were in a band called ashes uh, together. And then they both moved to Boston around the same time. And then not long after moving to Boston, they started this band together called Milltown and Chuck and I, and my collective like group of friends would see, we would go to every Milltown show that we could get to just blown away by this band this band was making the music that this was i guess milltown what i'm sort of driving at here is milltown was the first band that after having heard them that the three of us at the time that were orange island in the beginning chuck brendan and myself were like that's it those guys have it that is if we could ever write songs the way they write songs they wrote these like three to four minute rock songs with sung vocals that were, that had so much melody pouring out of them, but were still had urgency and had, you know, they were rock guitar riff driven songs. No one else was really doing that in the scene. Everybody was doing something so specific. It felt like, and they felt, and it, and it fit in those boxes that, you know, we talked about the punk box, the indie box, the hardcore box, the, this, the, that Milltown was like, Hey, we're just going to write what we write as a collective. And there was something so pure and just beautiful about it. And I feel like that's what Orange Island was always striving for before we ever even encountered Milltown. And then certainly after encountering Milltown moving forward, it was always really just about what is inside of us? Like what's in our soul? What's in our heart? What's in the deepest, darkest and, you know, deepest, lightest part of us. And let's let that out. And then let's, let's let the people around us that we trust help us mold that into the most beautiful piece of art that we can mold it into. And so it initiated with working with Mike Porman. And then as we worked into that second release, first full length for Iodine, for Casey, everything you thought you knew, we saw um, Milltown actually had just broken up because they were, again, they lasted for such a short period of time. Matt Squires, the band that he played in after that, they we had, Orange Island had played a show with them at uh, Mass Art in Boston, which was um, an art college that put on shows all the time. And after the show, I walked up to Matt and I just said, hey, we're about to hit the studio in two days. Um, we're recording at God City, uh, Kurt Ballou from Converge's studio. We would love if you just came by, even if you just came to, to hang out. If you want to come by and, you know, throw in your two cents, that's cool too. Matt ended up showing up 
that week at the studio and then never left <laughs> um, in the sense that moving forward from that release till Orange Island stopped being a band, we did everything in the studio from a recording standpoint with Mike Porman and Matt Squire. We found our like pinnacle um, duo, recording duo. They just, they knew the three of us so well. They knew how to get the best out of us. And they knew that, I think they knew also that we weren't trying to be any other band, that we had this sort of odd uniqueness to us that it's just, this is what's coming out of these guys. So I'm going to help them take that sound and I'm going to refine it and make it the best it can possibly be. And maybe that'll be enough for the world to, you know, I don't know, to um, be able to process it or to be able to, you know, hang on to it and enjoy it and love it. At the end of the day, I, I don't genuinely believe that we existed at the right time. I think a lot of it was. Um, I think if we had come along 10, 12 years later, um, let's say maybe when like a Manchester orchestra type band is, is getting popularity and like, they're like, and I'm not saying Orange Island and Manchester orchestra are the same kind of band, but a heavier rock band, you know, drawing from the, all these different types of influences. Um, to me, that is a comp and, and I only say a comp in the sense of, because obviously Manchester, Manchester Orchestra is a massively successful band in the scene, but I don't know if Manchester Orchestra had started in the late 90s, if they would have gotten to the point that they're at now, even knowing how incredibly gifted those guys are as songwriters and how amazing you know their work ethic is and the amount of time and effort they put into their craft. A lot of times it, timing is, I don't want to say timing is everything because I think that's an over used um phrase but it's not everything it's not every exactly but it is a lot of things and yeah and i just think yeah i think orange island existed in this weird time where you had to fit really nicely into a category and if you didn't it wasn't and again this is me going back to having said earlier in this part in this conversation that like going to a show and seeing so many diverse types of bands on a bill was was exciting for me and hopefully was for everybody else going to shows back then because you were exposed to so much different music but at the same time those bands still fit into categories i think pretty nicely right there was the pop punk band there was the this band you know the hardcore band the whatever so yeah i guess uh, the long answer to your question is uh and this is this has really been the crux of orange island's in our story, really, it's been the through line of our story is we worked really hard. We tried our absolute best. We created we created the music that that 100% was what was inside of us. There was no, never a moment ever in the studio in this essentially six years that we got to, we're lucky enough to be in studios where we said, Oh, should we do this this way because so and so this is band is popular right now, or should we do you know should we make this sound that way because never once did that ever come up in conversation in the studio, and that is um <laughs> it's one of those double edged swords right it's one of those things that I think the collective of Orange Island we wear as a badge of honor, but at the same time, 
you know, Casey uh, or whoever the, our record label was at the time or anyone that was, you know, behind us and trying to promote us and trying to help us uh, attain that sort of next level of success so we could continue to make music. It was frustrating, maybe even more so for them because they knew what we were about. They knew how hard we worked. They knew that we were creating really genuinely, truly the original music that came from inside of us without compromising, yet they were unsure why a larger audience wasn't, gra- you know, kind of, I don't know, gra- grabbing onto it or, or you know, sort of pushing it forward. But to me, I just honestly believe that if it had fit if we had, ha- if there had been a category for um, post-hardcore bands that were, um, you know, influenced by all these other bands, but don't fit nicely into one simple category, like why can't that be a category? Was it frustrating for you at all? Because I know I've been in the situation where I feel on the outside, and it's like all the bands that everyone really likes are all friends, and it seems like they're here and I'm here, and they're doing great, and I just can't seem to crack into what's going on for whatever reason? I would say that yes and no. Um, I'm going to say first, and, and I will give you a better answer to this, but first, I think it affected me more for my friends' bands. So to go back to referencing uh, Mike Porman, who played in Hot Rod Circuit, Hot Rod Circuit, to me, criminally underrated band. While they still attained a level of success within the scene, I still genuinely believe Hot Rod Circuit should have been as big, if not bigger than a lot of those bands that they were on labels with, that they were touring with constantly back in their in their heyday. And I will go back a step further to my former roommate, uh, Josh English's band, Six Going On Seven, another criminally underrated band who, you know, maybe now all these years later are getting a little more of their due, but man, just a band that, deserved so much more recognition, deserved so many more listeners. Um, It's just, yeah, I I was never one of those people where it was like, oh, this is the, you know, this is the underground secret band. And then they bubble up to the surface. And then all of a sudden there's this backlash because, you know, the mainstream has kind of grabbed onto them or whatever. That never bothered me. It didn't bother me when I was a teenager. It didn't bother me in my 20s, 30s. And it doesn't bother me now. The idea that a band whose art I, I am passionate about and I respect the, the way they do things because you just don't know what the mainstream is going to all of a sudden accept as, okay, you, you know, you've been tapped. Okay. So now you can cross over to this side. N- no one knows. And so you're making art, you're making music, you're creating it in whatever space you're creating it in. And one day, you know, you've got, 50 people at a show and this I'll, I'll just go back real quick to you know the beginning of our conversation and me talking about the venue in Worcester the space where I got to see Jimmy World and Hot Water Music and these bands saves the day with you know 150 people and now of course Jimmy Eat World plays in arenas and or you know amphitheaters and 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 they deserve to be there and they deserved to be there <laughs> 20 years ago as well, in my estimation, with Static Prevails, with Clarity, with Futures, with everything, you know, that came after it. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything that Orange Island ever would have done differently. I don't think looking back now with hindsight, there's anything 
that I would want to do differently in terms of the actual creating of music and the sound that was our band. Because again, it was never an intentional thought out process of we are going to sound like X, we are going to be Y or Z. It just was what's what comes out is what comes out. If you're passionate about this thing, which you are, and this is just what you do, you're not like one of these mainstream producer guys or someone that works in one of these mills that uh, cranks out top 20 songs. You're just, you're, you're the sum of your influences. You are your artistic merit and what you create is what you create. You're not thinking like, oh, let me strategically piece this together so I can sound like X and be popular. Like that's, that's not how my mind works. And I don't think it's how yours works either. Exactly. And Keith, you just so much more succinctly put that together than I ever could, but that's exactly, exactly it. It's, it's, it was never intended to be anything other than what it was. And so I think, I think when you accept that you are that kind of, I don't know, creator of art or that you just always allow what's inside you to come out no matter what it is, no matter how it is. And then of course you, you, I think any creator, no matter what your medium is, there's always a period of refining whatever you initially sort of, you know, comes out. Right. Um, But, but then how far do you take that? And what, at what point do you say, okay, this is, wow, like this was this raw idea. And now look at it, it has taken flight into this beautiful thing, but it can still hold on to everything that it had when it first just sort of fell out of you or, you know, was forced out of you. It doesn't ever, at least to me anyways, and I think this was true for Orange Island is we, we just never forced it to be anything other than what it was. And so to take that sort of, um, I don't know, that ethos or that, that sort of bedrock of what Orange Island was that we just, we wrote the songs and we created the music that came out of us and, and really nothing more. Yes, we refined it. Yes, we worked to make it the best it could be with the help of people like Porman and Squire, but, but that was it. And when you, I think when you do that, you just, you, I don't want to say that you can't be upset when the masses don't get it or when, when, you know, a larger audience doesn't latch onto it and say, Oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. I wanted that selfishly. I wanted that for myself. I wanted that for my band. I wanted, I didn't, I never in a million years thought Orange Island would be a household name, but, but yeah, I wanted our band to attain more success than it did. I wanted our band to be able to continue on longer than it did. You know, there's definitely, a piece of me that feels like if we didn't stop when we did and we, and we just stuck doing what we were doing for another year or two, that maybe we could have pushed through to another level, you know, but again, hindsight, right. It's, 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 it's a double-edged sword as well. It's, it's, it's one of those things where I can sit here all day and say, Oh, what if this, what if that, or, Oh, we could have, or should have, but I'm, I'm, as I get older in life, I don't want to, play that game in any aspect of my life, um, personally, professionally, musically, creatively, whatever it is. It's, it's just a, such a slippery slope to go down. And what I've realized for me personally, and I can't speak for any of the other guys in the band is I've just accepted it now that yes, I wanted more for us. Yes. I thought 
that the the music we were creating certainly on the last two releases um the triple crown full length which we're now re-releasing uh on vinyl for the first time you know through iodine with casey and then our last ep which came out on rise i felt like we we were we had hit a a stride like i really did and i was really excited for what was gonna come next and i had no real expectation other than I believed that we were hitting sort of a, I guess a stride to to use the same word again, but I I really just felt like we were hitting that, that like a, a, another level. And then as quickly as we were there, it all just kind of ended. And in that moment, I was very, very, very hurt, sad, angry in some ways, but basically the band ended and I didn't have much say in the ending of it. And so that was really hard for me to process what happened? Because you're on this stride, you feel like you're in the position you need to be in. What happened? So it's 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 a little bit of the same story of Orange Island, where um, it's you know a good thing coupled with a bad thing. So um, we had had a conversation with Rise about potentially releasing because we knew we weren't going to be releasing anything else on Triple Crown. We had had a conversation with Rise about possibly doing something with them. At this point, Casey was pretty much on the precipice of not having iodine anymore. So the idea of like going back and working with Casey wasn't even really an option. So we were just, I don't know, I guess starting to put some feelers out with some other labels, but but really and truly, Keith, we were we were excited about these like four or five demos that we had just written. And we were at a point where we had our, you know, a good enough relationship with, with Matt Squire and Matt had a, just, he had like a two or three day opening in the studio. And he was like, if you guys have some stuff and you want to drive down to DC for the weekend, we can record them. And so we hopped in the van and we drove down and we recorded these quote unquote demos, which still to this day, to me, are the absolute best recording we ever created. And I think in some ways it's because of how quick it all happened. There was no overthinking it. Um, But I also think it's less about that and more about the fact that we had all, again, kind of hit that stride in terms of Brendan knew, knew his guitar, knew, knew his, 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 what he brought to the band, knew his place in it and knew that he could take, um, whatever uh, structure of song we had written, and then given a little bit of studio time, he would write all these super sick, small little pieces around around the song that would just give it all this depth and all these different layers. And he was so in the zone with that. And Chuck, you know, would would just go bang out his drums part, drum parts, and then because Chuck was a, a major piece of the songwriting and also basically at that point the sole lyricist in the band we were just we were all so in it together and we were just like it was like oozing out of us in that moment and that weekend I'll never forget it Uh, I've never been prouder of the guys in my band in terms of like everyone's takes like it was just there was no stress it was easy it was I don't know it was just this beautiful little moment in time and because of how good that all because of how great it all worked out and because of how good the sounds were that we created that weekend we kind of thought to ourselves like this might be the beginning of something really special 
So rather than just, I don't know, throw it a random, you know, EP release or whatever, maybe we should take this as the stepping stone to our next full length album. And maybe we need to take these songs and I don't know, shop them to a label, show them to some of our friends who are in bands that are bigger now and see what they think, like get some feedback from people. So we started to do that. And I shit you not, as we were in the process of like having some conversations with some people about sort of the future of the band, the future of these songs, the direction things were going in, somehow, (laughs) somehow, we had agreed to release the songs with rise and rise was already like moving forward. And it just, it was a very strange situation. And honestly, I can't tell you um, looking back on that time, exactly who said yes, who said no, who said go, who, whatever happened. All I know is, is one minute we're in, let's say, I don't know, Ohio on tour We just played our show. We're sitting in the van kind of decompressing after the show, talking about these songs we had just recorded a few weeks back and about, you know, people that we wanted to maybe work with to flush out an album. And then two days later, we find out that Rise has the rights to the songs and is already has an EP in production. And we were like, okay, so there, there goes that. So that means these songs are going to come out on an EP. That's what they're going to be. And, and it just felt like the wind (laughs) just completely dropped from the sails. And when I say the wind dropped from the sails, I mean, it felt like the wind stopped, the sails fell down and the boat sank within like 30 minutes. But why? Just because I guess, because it felt the feeling of knowing that your songwriting had had officially sort of stepped up to the next level knowing that you're able to capture that in a very quick recording session led us to start thinking about going down a road of orange island finally attaining the next level that it felt like we kept getting shut down from blocked off from diverted from whatever you want to call it and i'm not saying it was always somebody else or bad luck. I mean, we certainly made our own mistakes and we certainly took our time at becoming better songwriters and a better band. But um, yeah, I guess it just, it just felt like all of a sudden all of the ducks were in a row, all of the pieces were lining up. Everything was heading very seamlessly towards this. Okay. Maybe this is it. This is how we get to the next level. It's uh, someone had the rights to our music and that music was going to get released and we really had no say in it. Uh, and we tried to shoehorn our way in and sort of, um, I don't know, uh, put a, you know, put a stop on what was happening, but it was too late. You know, the, uh, the hay was out of the barn, if you will. And at that point it just, we just accepted it as, okay, this is just orange Island being orange Island again. So, it felt like the worst gut punch in that most of the things that had happened to Orange Island previous, I don't want to say we saw them coming, but but when they happened, it was like, oh, of course, yeah, well, well, I should have seen that one coming. Or yeah, if you if you look back and you you look at this, you look at this, you look at that, yeah, it led us to this to here, and that's why we're here today. This was the first time in the five and a half years at that point that we had been a band where 
we collectively felt that we were finally being released from that space or, or, you know, we were maybe um, taking more ownership of our place in the band, not getting to that next level. And instead of blaming it on all of the factors around us, we stopped playing the blame game and just said, Hey, we're just going to write music. And if the music feels good enough, we'll push that forward. And then we wrote more songs. We got in the studio with Matt we recorded them. We realized like, holy shit, these are by far the best thing we've ever done. Now, where do we take this? And in the excitement of realizing what we had finally done for the first time, I think the, um, I don't know, I guess the, the other side of the band, the business side of the band in that moment was not our focus because it was so much about the creative side because of what we were doing and how it was happening that it was almost like we forgot all the other lessons we learned. And then that bit us in the ass. And, uh, and, and none of this is to say that I'm not unhappy that that EP exists. I'm not unhappy that rise released it. Uh, I love that record. I love those songs and I am, so proud of those songs, but it, but it definitely was an opportunity. I really think could have absolutely not could have would have propelled orange Island to another level. Now, is that a half step up, a step up, a full step up, you know, a giant massive leap? I don't know, but I know what we are creating and I know that there was something special in it. And I know that if we had gotten to take that moment and elongate it, let's say a bit and, and have a full length record that we could put all that energy into and then send that out into the world and then tour on that. I think that would have been our opportunity to have then taken Orange Island to the next level. You didn't want it to be an EP. You wanted to do more with it, but Rise just wanted to put it out as is. Correct. So, so, so Rise had already sort of essentially given or had gotten the rights to to release the EP and we weren't fully aware that that had happened. And then once we realized that that was a thing, I'm not saying that we didn't have some conversations about, can we morph this into something more? Can we do something else with this? We had those conversations initially, but very quickly it became clear that that was not going to be an option for us, that there wasn't going to be, a budget for more studio time that there wasn't going to be. And and to be fair, also, Keith, it's not like we had, you know, seven or eight other songs to make a full album at that point either. But again, there's just, there was, there was something about that batch of songs and that moment in time for us where I feel like we could have rode that to the next level. And unfortunately we rode it into a brick wall. <laughs> and then that was very, very quickly the end of Orange Island soon after that. You mentioned struggling with addiction at various points, and I have too. And I want to touch on that in in your case in a bit. But what I've learned is I used to think, oh, maybe I should have done this, or maybe I should have done that, or maybe I should have put more time here. But I was in so much trouble, and I had so few skills in terms of navigating life and dealing with people that at this point now at 40 years old, I don't have regrets because I didn't have any capability of doing anything correctly. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't say anything. I had a job, I mostly paid bills, all that stuff, but 
when I think like, oh, I should have, I don't think anymore, oh, I should have put all of my energy into artistic pursuits and been responsible with relationships in my life because I don't think that anymore because I didn't have that capability. I was so hung up on getting fucked up all the time and I was so insecure that I let that bleed into relationships in my life and how I acted. So I just didn't have the skills. So talk about your experience, Dave, how it affected your life when you were younger and where you're at with it now. Yeah, I think that um, I think that anybody who's ever really sat down and listened to the band Orange Island, certainly if you've ever really dug into our lyrical content, you would it would become very evident very quickly that not only did we all grow up in a very small town, very um, Irish Catholic small town, the idea of getting drunk as a teenager was not only accepted, it was celebrated. So I, I think when you start with that sort of baseline, it's obvious why alcoholism and um, substance abuse in general is such a constant theme in our in our songs and in our, in our lyrical content because not only were I think at different times all the members certainly Chuck and Brendan and myself at some point or another I think were certainly going down a slippery slope with 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 whether it was alcohol or, or other substances but there's there's the piece of you right that's looking for acceptance there's the piece of you that's looking to be able to uh, socialize better to um, you know to to fit in to relax and all those things right and when you when you first start to dabble in substances whether it's alcohol or, or drugs or or cannabis or anything it's it's um, in some ways, I think for me, it was like a little bit of ex- exciting in the sense that it opened up sort of another, um, I don't know, it unlocked a piece within my brain creatively. So for me, it was like, oh, so this substance, let's say alcohol, can maybe make me a little more social for a small period of time. And then everything else that happens after that, I hate. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, when I started um, sort of dabbling in in cannabis that unlocked something for me that I thought was actually a tool and it opened up something in terms of music and art and creating it that made me feel I don't know made me feel more in tune or locked in or in sync with um, with whatever I was creating in the moment um, but again it's also another thing that's so easy to go, off of that and to go in this direction or that direction. So I don't, I don't believe that substances are really truly a tool to help a creator create better art. I'm not saying that that can't be in small doses and in certain periods of time, because I do, I do believe God, I, I'm, I feel like I'm, there's so much I could talk about here, Keith. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm my brain is going in like 10,000 different places because I do genuinely believe that like in small doses, um, you know, um, mushrooms or LSD, things of this nature can open up um, pathways in our brain that help us to see things clearer or get us from one place to another place in a more direct way. But it's also, it's a, such a slippery slope and it's very easy to, to utilize 
those tools or those those things that can help push your art forward or in a different direction or unlock something for you. And then it becomes a crutch. And that to me is when it becomes not, not just a problem, but, but scary. And also um, then be, can certainly become an addiction for people is because this one thing helped unlock something in you at one point in your life, in your consciousness. And now you expect that to happen every time you utilize that substance. And Usually it's diminishing returns and often, more often than not, it's no return, right? And then you're just- Is that the case for you? Oh, f- with alcohol, for sure. With cannabis, it was, with cannabis for me, it was less about becoming more, becoming a problem as like a substance abuse or a crutch and more as a lifelong asthmatic, um, being a singer in a band and you know smoking weed regularly, the two don't mix. Uh, especially again as a as a lifelong asthmatic, so I learned that pretty quickly that I couldn't be a good singer in our band and smoke weed all the time. It's just the two don't mix. Um, so I mean, I just that that for me was very black and white. Um, alcohol for sure was uh, a major crutch for me uh, in our band. Uh, it was a major crutch for me um, socially. It was definitely a social lubricant. It. it it brought me out of my shell. Um, it brought me out of anxiety, um, things like that. So I, for a period of time, looked at alcohol as really as an aid, which I know sounds insane now. And with hindsight, it's crazy to even make that statement. But in my late teens and early 20s, and even into my mid 20s, I really did view alcohol as an aid, as a social lubricant for me. Yeah, no, and that doesn't sound crazy. I used to do that. I would not do anything without drinking first. Like anything involving people and any socializing would have to involve alcohol. Yes, yes. And that was very much a common theme, not only for myself, but I think for Orange Island and and really a, a, a large collective group of friends and, and, you know, acquaintances of ours, everybody was, you know, down to party. Everybody was, and, and to be fair, I think, I don't want to, I don't know. I I'm trying to think of how to word this, but I don't want to say that Orange Island was accepting of this in like a good or positive way. But I think that in some ways we were so frustrated that we weren't finding our place or we weren't finding our bucket or our category, you know, and to, to bring this all back to, you know, where we fit. And the reality is, is we didn't fit in a nice, you know, category. I think the, the, those first like year or two, the, the early frustration of, of not really seamlessly fitting here, there, or wherever we became the, the cool guys, the party band, right. We became the band that was known as, well, those guys are the best. They're super fun to hang out with. We love partying with them. And then maybe the fourth thing someone would say is, oh, their music is really good too. Or, oh, they put on a really great live show. That was never first or second or third, right? It was, oh, they're super nice guys. Oh, I know them through so-and-so. Oh, those guys love to party. Oh, they're super fun. Oh, this, this, it was never about the music. And I don't know, I guess when you're younger, you're it's okay in some ways, or maybe just your, your idea of the way the world perceives you, like the world perceiving us as the cool party band didn't feel like a negative to us in that moment. And again, I think maybe in some ways we accepted it as such because 
we were like, well, shit, we're not fitting in anywhere else. And so if this is where we fit in as this band, then I guess that's better than nothing. When I was younger, I wanted, you know, if I was known as a party guy or a guy who could get drugs, like that was enough. But, you know, me as a 40 year old, I would rather be known as a accomplished musician when I'm 25. Oh my God, 100%. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And that's it. And that's the beauty of time and perspective and all these things is, yeah, I think, you know, I think we, we just were like, you know what? We can't be known for this thing we want to be known for or that thing we want to be known for. So if we're going to be known for something, let's at least make it positive. And if people think of us as like the fun party band, then I guess that's what we'll be for now. Hoping that that would then transition us to something more serious down the road. Um, And I just think that two, three years later, when we wanted to be at that point, and this goes back to, you know, sort of that last recording that we did and those songs that ended up on the rise EP is we finally as a band collectively on that last tour we did Chuck had stopped drinking entirely. He was actually going for a run after our sets. And so we were starting to, to make those conscious choices like, Hey, I don't want to be this anymore. I want what's next. And so some of that too is also why I personally really felt like the next step in Orange Island's evolution was about to happen because not only were we saying we wanted to be better and saying we wanted to do these things, we were actually actively doing them. And not just, you know, not just the music, not just the moment, not just making better life decisions as we were getting a little bit older. All of those things for me collectively led to, all right, this is it. This is our, this is finally our fucking moment, right? This is everything led us to here because if we had written and and started to record these songs that are like on the next level for us personally, and we were still all partying all the time, then it wouldn't have mattered because we wouldn't have taken it seriously. We wouldn't have been in the right place to take those songs to the next level. So that is why I was so sure we were about to go somewhere. So we've got one night stay coming out. Orange Island is seeing the light of day again. We have this collection of tracks coming out September 30th. Tell us what's on the record. Tell us what to expect. I could not be, yeah, I could not be more excited about this re-release. Not only that we're going to have an official vinyl uh, LP, which to me is just a, like, talk about bucket list, like bucket list of bucket list items. We've been able to, and, and a lot of this goes to thanks, all the thanks to Casey. We've been able to remaster the songs. So everything is remastered. We've been able to pull out all these um, small, just lovely little guitar overdubs and little, you know, vocal harmonies that got a little bit lost in the mix 20 plus years ago now, or not even 20 years ago, 18 years ago, whenever it was. It's um, so that at least for us as a band, we are so excited. We were very excited when Casey was like, Hey, let's remaster this. If we're going to do it, let's do it right. I want you guys to be as happy as possible with how this sounds and, and, you know, let's take it further. Let's, let's create new artwork. So that was super exciting. So Casey started with, Hey, I want to do this small passion project, release a few of the old iodine stuff, you know, do a a vinyl thing, blah, 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 blah. And we were like, yes, we would so love to do that. We will be a, a part of it and we will help in any way we can, but never 
after that initial conversation, did we know that we would have a remastered version with completely new artwork, which we absolutely love to death. And it's also sequenced in the way the the story arc of that album is written lyrically. It is now sequenced as such. And going back real quickly to when we made the album the first time around for Triple Crown, it was definitely a period in the time for Orange Island where people were trying to help us get to the next level. And so we were listening to people in the industry who had experience, who had put out records before, who had produced records before, who had seen bands go on to certain levels of success. And the advice that we got was, these certain songs should be in your first four or five songs on the record. And those, and it didn't necessarily jive with the way that we wanted the sequencing of the album to be, but we said, you know what, we're going to listen to you. We're going to, we're, we're going to take that advice. And we did. And looking back on it, it was never a, you know, Oh, we should never have done that kind of thing. Um, it's just having this re-release just allowed us this opportunity to say, Hey, if we're re-releasing it, remastering it, creating new artwork, why don't we sequence it the way we always wanted to? So we've also done that. And I can't tell you how special it feels to have your to have a piece of art that you created so long ago to get this like to have all this new life breathe, you know, breathed into it. And also at the same time, it it just it feels new. It feels like a completely new piece of art. And I know I speak for everybody else in the band in that we are we could literally not be more happy with the way all of this has come out. Um so yeah, it's it's we're trying to we're trying we're making videos right now. We're having conversations about um getting in a our friend's rehearsal space with the idea of maybe playing a show or two uh, later this fall as well. So these are all things, Keith, that I never in a million years, when when Casey first called me at the beginning of the pandemic and said, hey, I'm thinking about maybe doing a couple of releases on vinyl. I'd love to do you know, yours, of course, blah, 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 blah. After that initial conversation, I just thought to myself, fuck, man, finally, I'm going to have one of my records on, you know, and one of my albums on vinyl. This is so cool. And now here we are today it's just so far from what it, what it was in that first conversation. And I just, I know we all feel super lucky that Casey has been willing to do what he's done for us and to help us. And I'll have this like really special, exciting, you know, re-release of the album. And um, yeah. No, it's great because you can revisit it now as older people, as friends without all of the expectations and the, everything you're thinking about when you're young and you know like uh is the band going to be our lives is it going to be big all this stuff i mean forget all that we're revisiting it as we are now with normal expectations and we can just approach it as this fun thing and it's it's kind of a second chance you know not that you're going to go out there and be like oh this is our chance to make it but you can just approach things as you are now and approach it in a different way and i that's how i feel about what i'm doing with this you know like i have some regrets about the past and i think sometimes maybe i could have done this or maybe i could have done that but i am of sound mind and body now and i can fully dedicate myself to my craft and that's what i do and that fulfills me and makes me happy with the way life is what a beautiful thing that is so so cool keith 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I just, I feel, I wake up every day, like I said before, I know I get to go to work on a place that I love. I get to do a thing that I love to do. And then I get to leave work and I get to literally come home, put together some food for dinner for later, and then sit down and talk to you on a podcast about my band from 20 years ago, which if you had told me five years ago I'd be doing, I would say you're out of your mind. Who would want to talk to me about anything? Um, it's just, it's, it's incredible. The, the ride of life when you just let it unfold and let it happen and just enjoy the ride. Right. Like it just, I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. I, you know, I, I, I just, um, I saw some friends at a show not that long ago. It was actually, um, newfound glory four year strong be well um the movie life also played this was all in worcester at the palladium outdoors this is probably about a month ago or so and i just i remember standing and just kind of taking it all in and looking around thinking to myself i don't care if anybody here knows who i am i don't care if what anybody thinks about me i i don't need anyone to know that i was in a band or to know that i know any of these people on stage to be removed from all of that like scene stuff and being seen in the S E E N way, like to have all of that removed and to just be a, you know, a 42, 43 year old dude, just going to see his friends bands play with some of his older, older friends and to just stand in a lot in a sea of kids and look around and go, this is so fucking cool that my friends are still getting to do this and they're playing in front of all these people and all these people are so excited to be here today to be a part of this, to be a part of this collective joyful experience of art, of, of sharing art and creating a safe space, you know, for all of us to experience it in. It just brings me so much joy to know that people are still going to shows. People are still caring about music. And even if it's a slightly bigger scene than it was, you know, then the late nineties and early two thousands, to me, that's only a good thing. The fact of the matter is there's a scene, there's still small scenes out there all across the U S and all across the world. And, and people are still creating art and basements and in backyards and sidewalks. And, and I hope that, I hope that lasts forever, right? Because what else are we doing if we're not creating and we're not just listening to that voice deep down inside of us saying, I need to do this. I've got to get this out. You've got to scratch that itch. You've got to listen to yourself and believe in yourself and really just not give a fuck what the world around you says. It's all still happening and time is a flat circle and everything we did, new people will do again and again. And I take comfort in that. Hell yes. Me as well. Well, Dave, I'm looking forward to one night stay. I'm looking forward to hearing more from Orange Island. I'm glad that you guys are at it again and that it sounds like some more good things are happening. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much, Keith. I really appreciate the time and the conversation, just being able to exchange ideas and thoughts and feelings about those days and about these days. So I really do appreciate it. And there you have it, Dave Gorman. Wow, really awesome conversation. You know, Dave paints 
such a good picture of the whole story and the way he explains everything, talking about the scene of the time, the bands that influenced them, how those bands factored into Orange Island, uh, everything that Orange Island went through, everything Dave went through personally, the conversation around addiction, and everything that happened with that Rise Records EP and just, you know, where he's at now is just I I just thought it was a really good conversation, and I'm really happy for him and the band. Dave talked about this vinyl release being a dream come true for him, and I'm so happy for him and the band that this record is out, and uh, that hopefully there'll be more. You know, hopefully there'll be some gigs and some more from Orange Island. I love what they're doing, and I'm excited for more. So thank you so much, Dave. That was awesome. All right, so let's check in. How are we doing? I'm doing good. I think I might be getting sick or kind of sick. I don't know. I feel a little off. I feel like my voice sounds a little off. I had tickets to see Sunny Day Real Estate again last night. Now, I saw them at Furnace Fest, and it was one of the best things I ever saw. And I had tickets to the show Friday night at Brooklyn Steel, and I didn't go because, I don't know, I, I felt like I had the sniffles a little bit and a sore throat. And Sunny Day Real Estate posted a picture of the night before, and the room was packed wall to wall with people. It was a sold out gig. And I just imagined myself walking in and hitting a wall of people and being all the way in the back and being like, uh, no, this is no good. So I, I skipped the show. But listen, I saw them at Furnace Fest. It was great. That's enough. I'm telling myself that to alleviate myself from missing last night's gig, but it's fine. It's fine. And Furnace Fest itself, was fantastic. Now, I'm going to save the detailed discussion on the fest itself for our bonus episode, which comes out this Thursday. I'm doing a debrief with some friends about all the bands we saw and everything that happened. So make sure you tune into that. But I realized something. I think I have misophonia. Do you know what misophonia is? I'm going to tell you. Misophonia is people who are affected emotionally by common sounds, usually those made by others, and usually ones that other people don't pay attention to. Uh, I'm reading this off of Google, as you can tell. Breathing, yawning, chewing, it, it drives me up the wall. Throat clearing, coughing, I, I lose my mind. Someone doesn't have their phone silenced and the, the constant beeping. I go nuts. So here's an example. I'm on my way to Furnace Fest, right? And the guy's driving me, my Uber driver is driving me. And I see him, he keeps fiddling with something in the front seat. And it's really distracting. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? So he's driving and housing sunflower seeds, giant handfuls of sunflower seeds. The entire time he's driving, he takes a giant handful of seeds, dumps it into his mouth, and then he's chewing them and spitting the shell out into his hand and dropping it in, onto a bag in the passenger seat. And this went on the entire ride to the airport, and I'm losing my mind, like closing my eyes, trying to meditate and tune it out, and it was driving me nuts. So that's the way there. The way home, my next Uber driver, chewing gum. And not just chewing gum. It sounded like a cow chewing grass in a tall field and then he was snapping and popping the gum and it was literally making me jump in my seat. Listen, this happens to me all the time. I'll be on the phone with people and I hear something in the background, some repetitive noise or I can I can tell that they're clearly doing something else while talking to me and just checked out of the conversation and I'll be like, what's going on? 
What are you doing? Are you multitasking? Can you focus? Even on the podcast, you know, if uh, if there's some repetitive noise or something bumping up against the mic, I got to stop, recalibrate, and make sure that's not happening. And I know you want that too, because who wants to hear noise the whole time the interview was going on? So I think I have that. I think I have that because I feel really affected by those noises. But listen, it's a minor complaint. The fest was great. It took me days to recover. Days. I got home Monday afternoon. I didn't feel normal again until, I don't know, Friday. You know, I still spent a lot of time in bed. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to stand on your feet out in the sun for three days as a 40-year-old man. You know, by day three, I was just laying on the grass most of the day. <laughs> just like, I'm like, all right, I'm ready to go home. But it was great to be down there, to meet Casey in person, to be in the iodine booth, to talk to some of you, to talk to some of the people that I've had on the show. Really great time. Really great time. And the full debrief is coming later this week. Uh, but otherwise, everything is good, you know? This is my favorite time of year, fall. We've got fall fashion. We've got sweaters. We've got long sleeve shirts. We've got coats to wear. We've got knit hats to wear. We've got boots to wear. This is it. This is it. This is the time. Halloween is always fun, you know? Every year I watch Halloween, the movie, the original, of course. And speaking of scary stuff, who's watching The Dahmer Show on Netflix? I have watched it, and I really like it. And look, I know there's a lot of controversy surrounded with it because of the subject matter. You know, I've read some articles where the survivors and their relatives are re-traumatized by another show being released about this thing. But look, I'm a sucker for good entertainment, and I don't know what it is about this case, but I get sucked into reading about it, and I have for a while. I think just because of the scope of this thing, you know, just how brutal it is and the ineptitude of the police and how did this go on for so long and nobody found out and people did try to alert the police and they weren't listening because of uh, the socioeconomic status of the neighborhood and everything else and the inequality. And it's, there's just so many factors to this thing, but I do think it's a fascinating case. I watched the whole show and I really liked it. It's very faithful to what happened. They changed some things and, you know, they take liberty with some things, but I thought it was a really good adaption of the story and not too gruesome. Like, I don't like really, really out of control blood and gore and that kind of stuff. And there is some, but it's not completely out of control. I liked the show. I'd like the show. If you're interested in the case and uh, it's not upsetting to you, I recommend it. It's getting colder. I can't keep the window open all day and all night anymore because it gets too cold in here, but I'm ready for it. I want it. I think it's awesome. You know what song I always listen to every year around this time? Texas is the reason. Nickel wound. If you know you know. It's tradition. So that's it. That's it for this episode. We're out of time. I'm doing great here, and I hope you're doing great as well. We're back Thursday with the Furnace Fest recap episode, so make sure you check in. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and until next time.